you know, it's interesting, it's purely coincidental that it is Labor Day. Uh, and yet on my heart has been all of the things that are going on in our country, all of the things that we cannot ignore. And we have a moment before we start a new series. Um, the new series will be on the Gospel of John, but this moment we're finishing this series on discipleship. And I think it's relevant to apply our discipleship today uh, in thinking, in not allowing ourselves to sidestep or um, stay seated, as it were, from the conflicts that are going on around us. But as we participate and ask how a Christian um, must step into and out of faith step into culture in the face of oppressions. I will put that plurally and I'll explain that in a moment. That we are not alone in this, that this has happened before in history. And in fact, that the Bible talks in great length about oppressed peoples and that the Israelites themselves, of course, were commonly oppressed peoples. And so I want to read this morning a psalm that is not probably commonly read in churches uh, and probably not commonly preached on, um, in part because it's pretty difficult to stomach. Um, but open your Bibles, if you can, with me to Psalm 137, or pull them up on your phone and listen while I read the scripture today. The heading on this is, How Shall We Sing the Lord's Song? Perhaps mirroring the feeling that Megan had as she was praying today. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. Our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what? You have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord can be challenging at times. And this is a challenging text. This is a text commonly used in, in seminaries as a study in how do we interpret the Bible. 
Is the Bible, is the Psalms here indeed saying that we shall take vengeance when we're oppressed? Is that what the Bible is saying? Well, I think it's important today for us to look and not hide as we talk about the notion of oppression. And I hope that I can illuminate a third way. That the Bible, that in speaking in this psalm and the whole Bible, we can understand a third way in which we confront oppression, in which we as Christians are called into the space of the oppressed. We are called to recognize, in certain cases, oppression against our faith. We are called to intervene in oppression on other people, on their behalf. There are many forms of oppression right now. All you have to do is open up a news, a news site and you will see not obviously the oppressions that we're well aware of with black lives, but you will also see many other citations of oppression. And indeed, many of us in our lives have felt very oppressed before the year 2020. So this is not unique. This psalm was written long, long ago. We know and we understand oppression. We see oppression. Some of us have experienced a lot more oppression than other people. But nevertheless, we can't ignore it. And so today, I want us to think about this as our big idea, looking at this, what I would call a protest psalm. And I want us to take this away, that when meeting oppression in the world, a Christian must anchor the conviction and character. We must anchor to that conviction and character of Jesus the founder of our faith. We are Christians, after all. And when I say conviction, I mean this, that we will not let culture and its traumas distort our faith and practice, nor cheapen our God. We will not react in lukewarmness, nor will we react in fear. We will react out of conviction. We will step out in conviction, in response. And secondly, that we will act in character, that we will not revolt in such indignation that we cheapen the very name of Jesus. And that we will not fail to care and love our enemy as Jesus commanded us. And therefore hide in the shield of pride with contempt. So we are neither to entertain nor disdain the world's oppressors. I'll have to chew on that for a minute. So I picked, I picked this text in part because I was looking and asking God, what do I preach on this week that in some way encapsulates the feelings that you're guiding me towards and the feelings that we're experiencing as a culture and a nation? And I have to admit that I have no, I have really no experience to speak personally about oppression. I'm not standing up here as a person saying, I know what this feels like, and let me tell you from my perspective. No, instead, I, I, as a pastor, I preach the whole counsel of God, and I look at the psalm and I say, this person knew oppression. And so from my perspective, I stand up here seeking to preach as much to myself as to you, the church, and to say, how do we encounter and listen well 
to the oppressed. The psalm teaches us that we must listen. To get to the bottom of this very hard text, we must be really good listeners. For me, as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant middle-class Portlander, right, I must listen really hard to be able to have constant compassion for other people's traumas that I may not consider my own, for other people's oppression that I may not be feeling or experiencing. And I must be careful to put the oppression that I may feel in its right place and look at it and understand it and seek to know it in relationship to the traumas, but not hide in a, in a closed box and say, well, I am also oppressed, therefore I can't listen to your oppression. And that's my conviction today as we look at this text. Think of Psalm 137. Think of this that I just spoke. I said, think of it as a protest song. Think of this. I don't know if you guys know bands, right? But there was a band when I was growing up called Rage Against the Machine. This band was loud. It was rock, man. And it was saying, we have had it with the system, right? I feel in some ways that this is a hard rock psalm. <laughs> It is saying, we've had it, we're angry, we're upset, and we're not going to hide it. And the end of it almost is a twisted beatitude, right? Blessed shall he be. Think of Jesus, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. No, in this psalm, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them on the rocks. That is a twisted text. How can that be? Esau Macaulay, black pastor and preacher who writes for the New York Times, uh, in the opinion section, was asked to write a monthly piece. Orthodox, amazing pastor writes this about Psalm 137. He says, Psalm 137 is a psalm of the traumatized. It depicts the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, the sack of the city, sexual assault, and the brutalization of the innocent. And he asked this question, how can wishing though such an atrocity be in any sense a religious text? How can we have a text this raw, this awful, that is wishing the death of babies in a religious text? He brings up a great question and we have to wrestle with a psalm like this. We have to say, this challenges all my senses of how to read the Bible because if I read this out of context, it seems as if the Bible is prescribing vengeance. And of course, many would jump on this and say, yeah, I feel it. Let's go do it. Let's burn things down, an eye for an eye. And I am speaking on both sides of the equation right now, as we can clearly see in our own city. A life for a life. So we really need to tackle this. First of all, I want to be really clear. This is not a prescriptive text. Because anytime we read the Bible, we have to read it in context of the whole Bible. That this cannot be a text advocating for personal vengeance, for vigilante action. Because that would not ring true with Jesus' Beatitudes. That wouldn't ring true with love thy enemy. So initially, we're reading this, and we have to challenge, and we first have to say, what is happening in this text, and how do I listen to this text? And second, we should say this, 
How should we then understand it? What do we do with it? How should we understand it and what do we do with it? Because we need to walk out today with some sense that we can apply this. We have, we have a conflict in this country raging. We as a church are called as disciples out of faith into fruit. We can study and study and study, but there also needs to be a place at which we say, I know what I need to do and I'm going to begin to contribute. So let's jump into verse one of this. This is poetry. This is sort of a trauma poetry. And in verse one, it says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So I gave you a little bit of background from Esau Macaulay's piece. This takes place, this was written after the exile and after the return. So remember our series in Nehemiah, how Nehemiah had come back out of Babylon and he had rebuilt the wall. Ezra had come and rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah had come and rebuilt the wall. And here they were in a sort of a shadow, a faint glimmer of the original Jerusalem, but Jerusalem. They were here. So imagine, like Nehemiah, imagine this writer surrounded by this sort of feeling of we were great and here we are, right? There's a sense that there could be so much more. And I sense that this psalm is sort of a, a flashback moment, right? Looking at these walls, looking at this temple, remembering how it was, and then you flash back. And it's like in movies where you see the flames shooting up and the horses riding by, right? And just the very sense of destruction as Jerusalem is overtaken by hordes on horseback who are killing women and children who are dashing little ones against the rock, the Israelites' little ones. And in this trauma that this writer feels, he is pouring out of himself another memory that triggers another memory when we were then taken into captivity. And as an eyewitness account, he is saying, there we sat in Babylon under our captors, under our tormentors, as prisoners of war. And we were sitting by the waters, not playing around, not having a great time, with men on horseback with swords and shields behind us, right? With people trapping us and holding us, a reminder that we are not in power. And there we remembered Zion. There we remembered this horrible experience. So that's how this begins. Macaulay continues, he says, what kind of song do you write if you are forced to watch the murder of your wife, your child, your neighbor? He says, Psalm 137 is trauma literature, the rage of those who lived. The question isn't why the psalmist wrote this. The question is what kind of song would the families of Ahmed Arbery, George Floyd, Eric Gardner be tempted to write after watching the video of their deaths? It would be raw and unfiltered, wouldn't it? But more than an expression of rage, the psalm is a written record in time. It is a call to remember. He says this psalm and the other psalms of rage require us to remember the trauma 
that led to their composition. So we can have whatever feelings of judgment, whatever decisions we've made around this issue, but we must put them aside for a second and simply say, as a human to another human, when you voice a feeling of trauma, though it may be politicized, though there may be narratives placed on top of it, as a Christian, first I must look you in the eye and I must hear it. I must listen. You are a soul. That's the first thing that's happening here. We are hearing this story and we are saying, in our heritage, so to speak, not racially, not ethnically, but in the Christian heritage, in our Bible, there are people voicing this kind of trauma. Can I listen to it? So in a way, we need to place ourselves in the shoes of the writer. As he is, sitting, as he is remembering sitting by the waters of Babylon, in the place of confusion. Now, why do I say that? The place of confusion. Babylon is sort of the future city that originated in the Tower of Babel, right? And Babel was the Tower of what? Confusion. What happened? The people of Babel built a tower saying, we are powerful. We are the best. They denied God. They went off. And what happens when you take and you go away from truth? There can be 10,000 competing truths to truth. What's the result of that? Utter confusion. So the Tower of Babel is not simply a story, but it is also just a, a truth, a poetic truth. That when we leave the truth, there will be competing truths and they will be a mire of a confusion, as Megan said in her prayer, a smog. As we sat in the waters of the city of smog, is what they're saying. As we sat in the place of confusion, there we wept. And as Christians, we can identify very well with that. We can say, I am in a land of confusion. This is a confused place. I must be very careful what I listen to as truth in a confused place where there are 10,000 voices heralding falsehoods. That's how it begins. I think we can identify with that and we can say, I would like now to hear your trauma as somebody who's been through the darkest of days, share with me. And so, the lyricist, the songwriter, shares with us. He says, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. What's a lyre? It's a harp. We took, and on the trees, we hung up our harps. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us, one of the songs of Zion. Now, there, there are historical records, reliefs, paintings showing captors standing behind POWs in these days, forcing them to play music. This must have been a, a way in which their power was lorded over the other. Can you imagine? They're not prescribing simply to sing a song. Use your great abilities, O prisoners, to please us. But they're actually ordering them and programming their emotions. They're saying they required of us songs and mirth. Amusement is what that means. To be happy and joyful and gleeful and laughing. 
in a place of oppression, in a place where their rights have been taken away, in a place where they are being dehumanized, their captors are saying, dance, monkey, dance. And it is everything we can imagine oppression must feel like. It shows the oppressor as selfish. For the oppressed, it is dehumanizing. It seems to strip away their power. It is degrading. And this writer senses what it is deep down at the core. It's even more than that. Human to human would be one thing, and it's egregious and bad. But this is on a spiritual level. This is the tower of confusion mocking the truth. Where is your God now? How will he save you now? So it's, it's to them a great irony. They say, you suppo you're supposed to have a great God. And we're going to poke fun at him because guess what? We took you over, which means we have taken over your God. It was common in those days, right? For the, the, win the winners of a battle to haul off the idols and the gods and put them and subjugate them and sort of abuse them, right? It was an act of power of saying, our gods are better than your gods. We are better than your gods. So in this mockery, what did the oppressed do? This is interesting. They have, they have legitimately no power in this situation. If they were to rise a hand, they would be beaten to a pulp. So what do they do? They hang up their harps in the tree. They just hang them up. The message puts it this way. Oh, how could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? And so their act of protest is sort of an act of anchoring themselves in conviction. They're saying, I cannot mine up that mirth for you. I simply cannot do it. It would break me into so many pieces. I would become disintegrated. I would become dehumanized. And I go, I know that my God desires and has put in me a soul. And I will stand by that soul even if it means I die because it's very likely that in hanging up their harps that they would just be struck down because they're disobeying their oppressors. And so the conviction of this writer at this time looking back is such that he is saying, I am convicted unto death that I will not do that thing that you ask of me. In essence, we have had enough. Notice there's a we there. It's a collective sense. We all agree. We have had enough. It continues. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. That last line is really telling. Now we have to do a little analysis here. Because this is a little bit of a confusing prose. Let's start at the end. It says, if I do not remember you, essentially, I will not be setting Jerusalem above my highest joy. That's what it means. If I do not remember you, I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So in order to remember God means that you set Jerusalem, which is their way of saying the holy city, God's city, God Almighty. 
If I do not remember you, I do not set God as my highest joy. Now, why, why are they saying, why are they making it a remembering thing? Aren't they just asked to play a song? Can't they just play a song? Well, they liken the, they, they actually curse their forgetting. So in verse 5 and 6, they say, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let me be cursed. So that tells you right there that they want to be one who is remembering. That that would be the good thing. And if they're to forget it, they will be cursed. They put a curse on themselves. So you know that they see here that remembering Jerusalem is the thing they know they must do. And therefore, because their curse does not allow them to play, it says, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Let my right hand forget its skill. What they're saying is, I cannot sing the song this time because in doing so, I would be forgetting Jerusalem. The very nature of singing the song you're asking me to sing would mean that I am forgetting my God. That's a bold statement. But I think for those of us who are trying to understand oppression that is happening around us or we're trying to articulate oppression that we may be feeling as a Christian, we need to decide where the line is. And this is, this is he is saying, here's the line. The line is, if I do the thing you are forcing me to do, I would basically be pandering. I would be entertaining you. I wouldn't be, I would be disingenuous. There's a point at which singing a song of praise is no longer singing a song of praise. Because all they would be doing is giving ammunition for the oppressors for their mockery. They wouldn't be making great of God. They would actually be handing God over to him and they say, you can't have God that way. I won't give it to you. I won't allow you to treat my God that way. You will not take his name in vain, is another way of saying it. They say, the, the way that you want me to do that is inappropriate. I will not do it. It is counter to everything I believe. So they have elevated not, not just to a dehumanizing, but to a spiritual level. Because their conviction is strong. Now, this is, this is pretty incredible because these people had been brought into exile because of their disobedience against God. So these are people who have gone through the deepest darkness into exile. And through that discipline, as we've talked about Hebrews 12 a few weeks ago, through that suffering, they have actually been refined. They have been made into people who truly hold God on high. In essence, what they are saying here is, I will not bow a knee to my oppressor. I will not bow a knee. Think of the book of Daniel in the fiery furnace. When they are asked, all you need to do is bow. That's what's happening here. I won't sing the song. And so the oppressors are saying, there is a point at which I will not give it to you because my conviction in my spirituality and my God and who I know him to be does not ask that of me. And I will not partake in your castrating of my God. You cannot do that to him and I will not be part of it. Continues. Remember, O Lord, 
against the Edomites, which Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So remember Esau and Jacob, and Esau disobediently seeks to take his oath from his father before the time, who is short-sighted, who wants to do life on his own terms. He sa they say, this writer says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to faith. Remember the burning. Remember, God, the burning down. And in a way, this, this writer has to be saying, I know that we were disobedient. I know that we're not perfect. But God, what they did to us is beyond. It's so awful. It makes me so angry. And perhaps this person is even saying, God, I know our people did this, but I don't understand why I'm getting the brunt of it. I have turned. I have repented. Please. Protect me. And then this becomes what is called an imprecatory psalm, a psalm that is praying down and asking for God to bring wrath out of their anger. It's saying, oh, the daughters of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. How do we receive that as Christians? How do we receive that? That is a really tough request. This, this cry, when we hear this, we have to hear the words, but more than the words, whenever we listen to someone well, we have to hear what they're doing. So I may use all kinds of words to you. I may, I may have all kinds of arguments to you, but in my clean Am I crying out? Am I attacking? See, in the Bible, we have to treat the text the same way. We have to say, what is happening here? What is the communication that's going on? In this trauma poem, what is happening? There is a holy lament, first of all. It's holy. This person is holy. They are not, they are not a person that is totally off their rocker and in the land of confusion. They're a person standing on the truth, anchored in conviction. Okay, well, that makes this hard to hear. If they're holy... And they're asking for babies to be killed. That doesn't seem right. So then we have to say, what else is happening? This is a guttural cry. This is a Job-like wail. This is a human crying out to the deeps in anger. This is a red-hot psalm. We are getting it. We could get it cool. We could get it all even-keeled in a nice epistle like Paul might write reasoned out, but that's not what we get. What we get here is red hot. It's right out of, right out of their mouth. And so we must understand this is a cry about injustice. It's inflamed. It's agonizing. And I've said we've, we put ourselves in the shoes and we listen humbly to this pain as we need to do when we encounter oppression. And as Christians who are convicted and who understand the character, we then need to stand in wisdom and say, let me take this in context of the whole. This is not discrediting the voice of someone who is depressed, oppressed. 
But we are to take it and we are to say, I am called to action as a Christian. I am called to a fruit from my faith. I am not saying I can't participate. I am not saying give me longer. I am saying I need to feel in the spirit that I understand the wholeness of this. I need to understand where this fits in the whole scheme of what God is asking. I need to really, truly hear it. We can learn a few things from this person. One is that they have a high view of human life, believe it or not. Now you might say, John, that's, that's ridiculous that they have a high view of human life. But they do because their babies were dashed against the rocks, remember? When Babylon came and ripped through, this is saying an eye for an eye, which is an Old Testament law. They are saying the justice for this would be to have the same done to you that you did to us. That would be justice. So they have a high view of human life. They do not treat lightly evil. But also we must understand that in the Old Testament times that this eye for an eye idea was not an excuse for personal vengeance. We tend to think of it that way, right? What the Old Testament prescribed that you could take an eye for an eye, that means if you just get punched in the face, you just punch him right back. No, actually it didn't. The eye for an eye was a judicial, a courtroom justice. It was saying there should be recourse so that somebody doesn't just get away with evil after evil after evil. There should be a deterrent for them. But actually it has never been the case that there should be excuses for personal vengeance. So we have to look at this and we have to say, what is happening at the beginning of this? If this is not personal vengeance. Well, in verse 7 it says, remember, O Lord, against them. Remember, God. This is a cry out to God about their oppression, about their trauma. This is not using God for their own outlets, for their anger against injustice. It is a cry out to a holy God, the just God in the courtroom with the judge, with the gavel saying, remember I'm so angry. Can you remember what they did? Bring justice. It comes first and foremost from a deep hatred of anger, or sorry, of evil. The Babylonians are a representation of all that is wrong with the world. But as a human, if we go and we take out our anger or our rage at the thing which we have deemed is all that's wrong with the world, I guarantee you we're on slippery ground. We must call out to God and say, you know the true evil. We see fallen men and women, and we have to see that we are fallen men and women. Perhaps we are not able to decide. So how do we understand this text? done a little bit running through this challenge. How do we begin to understand this and take this away? To get what's actually being instructed here. John, what are you trying to say? Well, I think I've made it clear. This is in the Bible for a reason. The Bible has divine revelation. So it's important to have this here. This text is crucial for us. We need to understand it. Secondly, that the inclusion of a text like this should actually give us some consolation. That the Bible is not aloof. That the Bible understands trauma. And that Psalms are not words from God first, but they are responses to God out of prayer. 
that are holy and they are divinely inspired. That it comes from conviction, but we must, as I mentioned, look in context of a whole Bible. So let's do that just for a second. I'm going to look at two texts, um, actually three texts, two Old Testament, one New Testament. The two Old Testament texts are Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 50, and this will give us just a little bit of context for where this person would be coming from. This is a person without Jesus writing this. So where are they coming from? Well, Jeremiah 29, which I, I, I believe they would have known, says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into Israel from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is Jeremiah the prophet writing, actually, to the exiles that have just been ripped away, that have had horrible injustices done to them. Get, get what he tells them to do. If this isn't the Bible for you, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Doesn't that just seem like a flat contradiction of this psalm? What do we do with that? Well, again, we've got to take it in context of the whole Bible. We've got to look a little deeper. We've got to say, okay, now I'm just totally confused, John. If you're teaching me how to read the Bible, thanks a lot. Now, if I just pull random text out, I'm going to be totally confused. So let's look at another text, Jeremiah 50. We need to understand the whole sense of Babylon. Here there's a curse on Babylon. Jeremiah writes this. He writes, this is the word of the Lord. He says, behold, I am bringing punishment. This is verse 18. On the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture. And he goes on about the great ways that he will treat Israel but he talks about this. He says, their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name and he will surely plead their cause, the Israelites, that he may give rest on the earth, but unrest to the inherent inhabitants of Babylon. So could it be, knowing what he knows, that this writer is saying, I know that you have said that the city of confusion the city of evil will have its comeuppance, right? Will have, its, will have its justice. I know that. I've seen that you have said, cursed be all that is evil. Because you are a good God. You have wrath and you have a sense of justice. You have wrath on that which is truly evil. But yet, this same God has had a sense of mercy on the Israelites. So in a way, could it be that when this psalm is being cried out inside the heart, as so many of us have when we're angry, we sort of know that when we're spouting off in anger that we're probably off kilter. We sort of know that there's probably a better, more wise way to do it. But we're just spewing it out because we're so upset. This gives us a great response as Christians, both listening to the voices that are traumatized and oppressed. And maybe when we feel in our lives times of oppression, of saying, 
I can spew out, but I do it up to God. And I ask him to remember, and I remember myself that he will bring justice to evil. But that he does not call me to carry it out myself. This person does not write and say, blessed will I be when I repay them. He said, blessed shall he be. Now it may sound like they're saying, I really wish someone else would just off these people. <laughs> right? That's kind of what it feels like. But I think it's greater than that. I think, I think he's writing and saying, remember, oh God. Blessed will be he who takes evil away from this earth. Now we can begin to understand it a little better from a Christ-like lens. Looking forward to Jesus. Blessed shall be he who will take the offspring of evil and get rid of it once and for all. That there will no be no future generation of evil in this world. We also have to read this in context of the New Testament as Christians. And go, go deep. Jesus on the cross says this. Father. Now, just set the stage for a second. Jesus on the cross. A victim of oppression says this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then the soldiers divided up his garments by casting lots and the people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 137? The mockery. Play us a song of Zion. Go ahead. We're going to kill you. If your God's so great, why didn't he save you? It's amazing when we can see the sort of continuity across the Bible. And here we are given a prescriptive response. One from Jesus himself who says, forgive the oppressors for they have no clue what they're doing. They're so confused. They have no sense of truth. So Jesus takes our tendency, which is to look at the children of Babylon, to look at the great crowds of the city, to maybe look at the state, which seems confused, the crowds confused, the state confused, and Jesus says, guess what, I have an answer for it. It's called reconciliation. It's called forgiveness. It's called mercy. I have a prescription for it. It's called love thy enemy. It's not the answer we want to hear. We don't want to hear that. That's too hard. We want to hear that there will be justice pretty soon for the people that are harming other people, for the people that are harming us. That's what we want to hear. But Jesus goes bigger. The psalmist goes bigger. And they say this is a spiritual battle. It has bigger ramifications. And in this time, as Issa Macaulay says, we remember. We must remember. <clears throat> the last section I'll read from this article, he says this. He says, the miracle of the Bible is not that it records the rage of the oppressed. 
The miracle is that it has more to say. Our news articles record the rage of the oppressed on every side of the equation. The miracle is that it has more to say. The same texts that include a call for vengeance upon Israel's enemies look to the salvation of its oppressors. And he says this, Isaiah 49 says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Or doesn't Jesus say, even a friend loves his friend? He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this right now? Well, hopefully you care. Hopefully this has been enough to say, I need to think about this. I can't let this one go. I can't step out of this. I can't be in an ivory tower. I can't be on the sidelines. As a Christian, I am called out of discipleship into a costly, sacrificial pursuit in which I will come alongside Jesus in the bringing of the kingdom. And what is that going to look like? Well, we have some pieces. It's going to look like crying out to God. It's going to look like hard things like forgiving our enemies. It's a few of the things. But we can see here that a Christian must, when confronted with oppression, first identify with the people who are voicing oppression. I, I'm deliberately putting this in broad terms. The only way we will heal right and left divides, urban and rural divides, black and white divides in our churches and as Christians who are salt and light to the world is to listen. To not just in contempt and disdain say, I've heard your argument before. I'm dehumanizing you. I'm stereotyping you. No, instead when we look into the eyes of another soul, we must listen. We must hear it. What is being said? Because sometimes what is literally being said is I have no voice. I don't feel heard. And that is a very dangerous place for people to be in. That is a place that the psalmist is in that is saying, I need somebody to bring justice for me and maybe I'll take it into my own hands. We need a listener. We need a person who will come and mourn and be and hear a non-judgmental presence. But in doing that, we also need conviction. The temptation in listening without a compass will be that we will let culture distort the goodness of Jesus. Either in our desire to be loved and to love, we will say, you have a pretty good point. You know what? Those people must be wrong. To the point at which we may let go of Jesus entirely in an effort to be part of one or the other camp, the crowd or the state, the urban or the rural, the black or the white, whatever it is in our current time or place, we will let culture distort the goodness of Jesus and we will not stand firm in our convictions. See, our problem as Christians is often we say this, and I'm going to quote Tim Keller here. He has a great take on this. He says this. He says, Jesus was either God or he was crazy, but he was not just an interesting guy. That is entertaining the crowd. We must make high of Jesus, and we must ask him how we are to interact, how we are to be part of it. And we must do it with an urgency, because I guarantee you, he is not saying do nothing. 
And it also, that also means that we cannot just run into social justice apart from God. When I say go into the crowds, there is a sense of justice happening in every crowd right now. You cannot run into that crowd apart from God. And that gets us to the character piece, which is that we can test this a little bit with ourselves by asking questions about character. That once that conviction piece is there, we can still go off the road. Because the Pharisees had conviction. They had tons of it. They said, we know what's right, we know what's wrong. And they grew a heart that was capable of dashing babies against the rock in their conviction. It distorted it. It was poorly implemented because their hearts grew cold. So as people of character, we should not become people like Jonah who say, yeah, God, but they're evil and I don't even want them to be saved. No, instead God calls those of us with those Jonah hearts into those messes. That was just an utter mess in Nineveh. It says, proclaim the gospel, the good word, and in doing so, heal Jonah's heart. There is a third way, a gospel way, a beautiful community in which we are a community that may have varying perspectives on this, that may have varying takes on how we need to participate. But we are actually aligned on the most fundamental piece that is that we are all becoming in the image of Jesus. So in the church is the one place where all of the various confusions that are brought in with us in our fallen humanity into the church can be winnowed out and worked down to the good seeds. And we can sharpen each other in that response, in that space. But only if we listen to each other only if we have conversations. And when we are out in the crowds, up against the state or with the state, that we can see in it Babylon and not Christ. And that we can discern the image of Jesus within it because it will be through not just conviction, but character. How do people act? Just one more thing here. Augustine, uh, early church father, says this. He says, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. Those are action-oriented words. Hope is an action-oriented feeling, conviction. It prompts action. But the courage he's talking about is not the courage we go to. We think, great, that condones my anger. That condones my courage to stand my ground, right? Or to jump in and show people what they need. But more often, this is a hidden courage. It is not a courage of fighting and exacting personal vengeance. It is a hidden courage of paying the cost through suffering, praying and crying out for justice, collecting, standing strong. Refusing to entertain this world with more violence, more antics, more he said, she said, more accusations. Will we, when the world looks at the church, now I want you to really think about this. 
We are what the world sees of Jesus, the church. When the church is out proclaiming the church, that is what the world sees of Jesus. What will that image be? And will it be true to the real image of Jesus? Who endured great suffering at the hands of oppressors, great torment and mockery, and turned and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And brought reconciliation, not simply by that feeling or that request or that kind heart, but through going through death to reconcile all in the world, to widen it far beyond what the Pharisees could ever imagine, to bring results far beyond what the zealots who followed him who just wanted war, far beyond the justice they could bring, to bring an eternal mercy and redemption and forgiveness. And we are called in our humble and lowly ways to go home today and think with everything we read in the headlines, how do I jump into this as the image of Jesus? Where do you want me? Again, where I might be hidden, where no one might ever know the good things that I bring into the world, but that they are the things that are acting like you. Let's pray. God, these kind of texts are, are difficult. Uh, our culture is difficult. This is a difficult year. In so many ways, there is oppression. There is the loudest and biggest oppressions that are so true and real and must be fought against for justice. There are also individual oppressions daily. God, we are not placing value on the oppressions. We are simply saying, help us be Christians in the face of oppression. Convict us. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.